Well, one of the things that changes, you're used to having a young man preach to you, and you're not going to get that today. <laughs> it's awfully good to be back with you, and I'm, I'm grateful to Ethan for the, for the, actually for the privilege of being able to speak to you again. I have missed you, Joy and I have missed you. We, we, most of you know, I think, that we've been homeless for the last three years. Uh, we sold and gave everything away when we left you, and we've been uh, traveling around the world ever since then, and um, we're not through yet. Um, we think we have a little bit left in us, but we're in Tennessee right now, and uh, awfully glad to be back here at, at First Christian. You look good. I want to, uh, I want to talk about trouble today. <laughs> We've had a bit of that in our, our travels. I will not tell you any of those stories. But I want to, I want to take you, uh, Ethan asked me to continue in the series that you're in. So I've been assigned Acts chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 in 25 minutes. Fortunately, I don't know very much about this section, so I think we'll be able to get through it all right. But I've got to get down to it. I've, I've entitled the sermon, from, from Trouble to Trouble with Joy. Now, I wasn't just talking about my joy. Um, she's been in a lot of trouble, too, but that's not the subject today. Um, she's not in this service, so I could say that. Several themes are interwoven in this passage. And I'm turning them, these themes into advice. Advice for us 21st century Christians. We begin, well, we begin in prison. And we end in prison in this section. Here's this warning, the first warning. If you're serious about being a Christian, be ready for big trouble. This section starts with Peter in prison, and it concludes with Paul and Silas in prison. Peter's in prison because King Herod is um, currying favor with the, uh, with the enemies of the Christian faith. And in order to please them, he's locked up Peter. His fellow disciples are concerned about him in prison and uh, they're all together in one place and they're praying for him. They're praying earnestly for the Lord to release him. Well, the Lord does release him from prison, and it absolutely shocks the Christians. Peter shows up. He's, he's, he's been locked up. The Lord helped him to escape. Peter made his way to where the Christians were meeting. He knocked at the door. The, the door was opened by a maid. She couldn't believe what she saw, but she guessed, and she ran back, and she told the Christians who were praying. Peter's at the door, and they said, Oh, no, that can't be, because they're praying that he might be. They don't believe their own prayers. They, uh, they're stunned. They think it's maybe a, a ghost of Peter. But it is literally Peter. Now at the end of this section, Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. They're thrown in prison because of their preaching. Now in between, there are several episodes that are uh, pretty clear that the Christians have made troubles for themselves. Let's start with chapter 13. Here we read, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Now, it wasn't enough for them to just disagree with Paul's teaching. They heaped abuse upon him. 
They expelled him. That's big trouble. How easily, and this is why I find this quite contemporary, how easily in our culture disagreement degenerates into personal attacks, abuse, slander. Just, just watch the news. Name calling is pretty popular right now. It's as if the truth doesn't matter. What matters is winning. Winning is everything. And if, if you abuse another to get the victory you want, you, you do that. Here uh, in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. They spend considerable time there converting some, infuriating others. There was a plot, we read, a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. I've been preaching a long time. I've upset a lot of people. I have not been stoned yet. And I'm grateful for that. But these guys, these guys took real abuse for their preaching. Now there's more of that in these chapters, but this is enough to make the point. Where did we get the idea, you and I, that saying yes to Jesus will guarantee our prosperity, make life a bed of roses, will smooth out all the rough places, will make everybody like us? Have we forgotten what Jesus himself said, warning his disciples? This is in the Gospel of John. If you, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Now, it's risky, this thing called discipleship. We are called to be different. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, you can't have it both ways. If you are serious about being one of my disciples, you'll get into trouble, big trouble. And I can tell you, if you want to stay out of trouble, three things you must do. Number one, don't. Don't stand up for your religious beliefs. Go with the flow. Number two, don't challenge people's comfort level. I used to make a joke out of it. I, I, I enjoyed saying, I, I can stand anything but discomfort. Well, I don't say that much anymore because, well, because it's not that funny. Because when my comfort bumps into your comfort, who, who yields? If my comfort is more important than yours, of course, I won't yield. And if yours is more important than mine in your eyes, you won't yield. And so there's going to be trouble. And the third thing I would say if uh, you, you want to escape trouble is don't, don't, don't challenge the power structure. Don't offend the big boys. The religious leaders in, in the book of Acts, again and again, they go after these Christians. And it's not really about theology. It's not really about God. It's really about power. They feel threatened. They feel jealous. So let's move on to the second bit of advice, that, and it grows out of the first. Be wary of crowds, even your crowd. Chapter 14 gives us another hard lesson. Paul and Barnabas are now in Lystra, where they meet a man who has been lame from birth. And when Paul is, is preaching, the man listens with rapt attention, and, and Paul recognizes him as a man of faith. So he speaks to him. 
Stand up on your feet, he says. And the man does. And what a commotion that caused. The gods have come down to us in human form, they, they cry out. And they call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. These are gods in the flesh, they said. The priest of, of Zeus even brought bulls and, and wreaths to the city gates to offer sacrifices to them. This really concerned Paul and Barnabas. They, they, they tear their clothes. They, they rush out in the crowds and say, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. But the, proud, the, the, the crowd was so impressed with them, thought they were gods. But in the very next sentence, we learn that they, some people come from Antioch and Iconium, and they were antagonistic to Paul and Barnabas, and they win the crowd over. So we read, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. And the next day, he and Barnabas left Derby. The, the, the fickleness of crowds, of groups. And these stories could be multiplied. Beware of the praise and the viciousness of crowds. Mobs are a lot more dangerous than individuals. Uh, I, I started to talk about groupthink, and then I, I scratched it out, because though we use the term groupthink, the fact of the matter is groups don't think. They emote. And that's what makes them so dangerous. And for you and me, the moral of the story is very obvious. Don't delegate to others the job of doing your thinking for you. Don't just go with the flow. Now, I know it's easier than being in the minority. It's easier than standing for what's right in a crowd that's thirsting for blood. But crowds scare me. We, we had a good lesson in this just a couple, three weeks ago, Holy Week. You know the picture on Sunday. Jesus coming in triumph, riding on the back of that donkey into the city of Jerusalem. The, the palm branches are waving, the people taking off their cloaks and throwing them before him. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a great, a glorious, a triumphant moment for Jesus that Sunday. Friday, what do we hear from the crowd? Crucify him! Crucify him! Same man. Beware of crowds. Beware of your own crowd. Beware of groupthink. And the reason, the reason that we need to avoid just going along with the crowd, even our crowd, is that crowds are always selfish. They're about us. They're about me. It's about what we want in the moment. It's about what satisfies us without regard to them, those that we are in the crowd going up against. We read in the New Testament not just Acts 12 through 16, but, but certainly in Acts 12 through 16, that you can't, you can't just go along with the crowd because if there's any message that, that God is trying to get through to us through the scriptures, through the work of Christ, through Paul and Barnabas, it is this lesson. Remember as Christians, remember, it's not about us. It's about them. There's a strong sense of purpose that permeates these pages. The, the example for us is that it's just not going with the flow. It's about living on purpose. It's about living with a mission, about giving ourselves to the mission. 
So, so our lives really can never be just about what we want or even what our group wants. It's about the people we can help, people we can introduce to God. There's a whole world of hurt out there and we're called to ease that suffering. And one thing that's pretty obvious as you read through the book of Acts is that Jesus' disciples are not self-protective. They're almost reckless in their urgency to reach others. Something is missing in Acts that is a dominant theme in our own culture. We don't ever hear these disciples ask, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? But our culture has taught us to ask that question all the time. Look at TV commercials. Listen to the self-help advocates. It's all about me. But what is missing in Acts 15 is, is this self-centeredness, this determination to win at all costs, to make certain that my party prevails over against your party. And as you read through, you, you become aware particularly if you listen in our own culture, our culture seems to think there are only two sides to every issue, the bad side and my side. Everybody is either good or evil. And the good ones are the ones like me. The good ones are the ones I like. That's missing. As we see the disciples negotiating their way through the book of Acts. Now, the, that culture is as divided as ours. But they're working for unity. You understand that at the time we're reading about, uh, the prevailing words were basically God's people and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now what's interesting to me about that is I don't know of any culture that doesn't divide people up into two groups. My group, that is the good guys, and everybody else. Religiously we talk about the Jews, the people of God, my people, the good guys, and the Gentiles, everybody else. Now that comes into full play in the 15th chapter of Acts around the, what we have come to call the Jerusalem Conference. What happened was this. Paul and Barnabas were preaching. They, they were converting people. They were converting Gentiles, people who've always been outside the pale, inviting them into the church, into full fellowship in the church, and that really upset some of the Jewish Christians. Now you have to understand in this division, both sides meant well. Both sides thought they were pleasing God, but they were at odds and blood was gonna flow. So some, some of the conservative Christians, as it were, came down to uh, where Paul and Barnabas were and, and took issue with, with the fact that they were allowing people into the church without being circumcised. Circumcision of the male was the, was the sign that you belonged to the Jews, that you were God's people. And Paul and Barnabas were not, were not requiring that before baptism. And that upset these Jewish Christians. And they said, you, you can't do this. You can't become a Christian without becoming like us. Does that sound at all familiar? So, it was as critical as it could be that they solve this issue. So we read 
that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this issue had to be resolved. So Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to meet with the elders there to ask advice to see if unity could be affected. And it was. But what is surprising to those of us who have been taught that compromise is a bad thing is that in the Jewish, uh, the Jerusalem conference, compromise was achieved for the sake of unity. Both sides gave a little. Both sides were not, I'm, I'm convinced, were not totally happy. But here's what we read. After they had met, the, the head of the, of the Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem, I should have said the head of the Christians in Jerusalem, James, wrote a letter. And this is it. He said, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals. In other words, you should eat kosher food. And from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. They sent this word back to Antioch. What they did not say was, and of course, you must be circumcised to become a Christian. You must, they did not say, you must become Jewish before you can be a Christian. Well, that's kind of big. Because all of us, all of us kind of want we want to be of the people of God and we want the people of God to look like us, to think like us, to talk like us, to dress like us, to feel like us, to smell like us. And I, I agree with that. I, you know, if I had my way, everybody in the church would, in fact, have my color of skin. Nobody would be in the church whose ways were not my ways. Nobody would be in the church who doesn't vote for my party. Nobody would be in the church who's over five foot six. That's right then. You get my point, don't you? We all want to hang out with our own kind, but that's not God's way. I, I was reminded in studying that passage of the day in, that I knew this church had a future. It was an elders meeting. It's while I was your interim pastor. We were talking about changes that would be coming in the future and what we had a right to expect of everybody in the church. It was a very wonderful conversation. And I heard some of those elders tell the rest of the group of some of their deeply held convictions. And I heard them say, but I understand that's my opinion. That's not gospel. That's not a requirement for people to be a part of this church. That's not required to be saved. And as I, I listened to them, as I said, I thought, oh boy, this church is being led by wise people. This church has a future because they're trying their best to be in the spirit of the scriptures. They're, they're trying their best to be in, this, in the spirit of our restoration movement, the movement out of which this church came, which taught in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty. In all things, love. So you see, it's not always about us. As Christians, we understand it's often about them. There's a world of hurt out there. 
We can't solve all the problems. We can't be everywhere at once. But we can be somewhere and we can do something because it's about them and not about us. Well, these themes call for a strenuous faith in response to a demanding gospel. But the unexpected theme here also ends its way through Acts through the New Testament like a recurring motif, and it is this. Be prepared to be surprised by joy. Starts, starts there back in Luke. Remember the angel appearing to the shepherds? The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of, that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be that bed of roses. I remind you again, chapter 13, they heaped abuse on Paul. But, same passage, the disciples were filled with joy, with the Holy Spirit. And then in, again in chapter 13, Paul notes that God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the heavens, in the seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. I was having a little trouble reading this word joy because I'm married to joy. So I have a double blessing of joy in my life. Now I can promise you that living with joy is not always without problems. That was not a comment on my marriage. Joy's not in this service. So I can say this. No, you understand in a good marriage you experience joy, even, that, even when that's not her or his name. But the joy is a permeating sense of well-being, of confidence in God that gets you through those rough times. So we're, we've got a lot of rough times. Here in the 16th chapter, the Philippian jailer, he's been released from jail again uh, miraculously. He's, he's scared at first. The apostles assure him that God was in this. So we read, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Well, this is kind of my own testimony. I may have told you this when I was with you before, but many years ago I was on a flight across the country. I had just enjoyed a good breakfast. Now that tells you it was an old story back when you had good breakfast on the plane. I was savoring my second cup of coffee and the flight attendant stopped, looked down at me and said, what makes you so happy this morning? I didn't even know I was. I didn't know, I didn't know what she saw. Now a little bit later I had to go back to the back of the plane for reasons that you would understand and I saw the faces that she had to look at all the way back and there were not a lot of smiling ones, I, I will tell you that. But I, I thought about what she said, because I, I, honestly, she surprised me. And I realized I am a joyful person. Now, since that time, I've thought about that story and have reflected, life for us has not always been a bed of roses. There have been bumps along the way. And enough has gone bad in my life that I have an excuse for some really first-class complaining. But when I stopped and put it all together, I realized I too was surprised 
by joy. You know that, that old gospel hymn we used to sing? I don't think we sing it anymore. I've discovered the way of gladness. It goes like this. I've discovered the way of gladness. I've discovered the way of joy. I've discovered relief from sadness. Tis a happiness without alloy. I've discovered the fount of blessings. I've discovered the living word. T'was the greatest of all discoveries when I found Jesus, my Lord. Now I know, this can come across as pretty syrupy, almost like a pie in the sky, by and by kind of faith, which I don't buy into and don't preach. But that song does acknowledge that even though life has its sadness and that sometimes we yearn for relief from our Lord and sometimes it can even become pretty desperate as in the case that we've been looking at in the book of Acts, still, 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 the Christian life is the way of gladness. It is the way of joy. Paul put it this way, and his words could be mine. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. That's my testimony. I hope it's yours as well.